welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host today with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman in the studio with me. We're going to be talking uh, about a range of issues, as we always do, about the um, the migrant situation at the U.S. border. We're going to be talking about the National Climate Assessment, about the fallacy of uh, lower gas prices. But first, uh, I want to welcome uh, Dr. Stephen Goldman to the program. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. You, just to give you a little bit of give folks a little bit of background, you've uh, you've done a lot of work <clears throat> on issues involving veterans, on on the Civil War uh, history in particular, and um, you've got some concerns that the way veterans are being portrayed right now is disingenuous. Yeah, I mean it's it's a subtle but important point, and um, let me let me give just a little background. The United States when it was formed, it was very careful not to have a standing army. And um, that's, how we, that's how we ended up with militias being armed uh, in relation to uh, the ability to have arms, because they were concerned about what, what Europe had, where Europe essentially had standing armies that in many ways were mercenary. And America has generally had, a, a, up until, frankly, uh, around World War II and beyond, a rather small uh, standing army that relied ex- almost exclusively on volunteers during uh, wars of which they had to recruit. That certainly has changed. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that's... I bring that up for a couple of reasons, because we have now swung from the vilification that all three of us watched, those of us who lived during the Vietnam era, vilification of our fellow citizens fighting a war they didn't choose to an over, I believe, an overcompensation to putting military service on a plane which is unsustainable and I think has implications for us, um, for, the, for how money is divided, and also for the, very, for the men and women who are serving. And... Um, Again, I sent along an article to you guys uh, last year, and the Economist really, really made a, a point about that. And you can see the present administration's um, extensive use of either active duty or retired military, and in some cases, and making it seem as if they were above reproach or criticism. And that's a danger. Right, but that's not unusual. That's not this administration. That's uh, been American. Uh, the, the way the way the government talks about foreign policy and, and about uh, service in the military, that's, that's been standard fare since Eisenhower. Uh, but it hasn't been the kind of thing we're seeing now where the word hero, which I never use and which veterans never use, particularly about themselves, is thrown around indiscriminately. Uh, the, the displays like the NFL runs on Veterans Day, um, the analogies to war that are not war, and there are many veterans who feel this way. I mean, there's a great column I saw about thanking veterans for their service, and many veterans say they'd rather have someone just say to them, welcome home, which, of course, was not, was not said to Vietnam veterans. Right. And, I mean, I mention this not in any way to, to downplay or denigrate military service, but military service is not the only national service. Right. And... I think that's an important point. People in the State Department risk their lives in many cases, as we've seen. Inner-city school teachers. 
Jur- uh, police officers, firefighters. Journalists, journalists at uh, Trump press conferences. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Charles and I have you know, spent our lives in medicine. In, I mean, take a look what goes on uh, for the, the nurses and docs in, in emergency rooms in underserved areas or teachers. I mean, I, I don't, it concerns me, and Charles and I have talked about this, that you also do something else, which, and again, Ed, this is important now because it's a volunteer army. It makes military service so foreign to all people who are not in the military. That's new. That was not the case previously. Is it really a volunteer uh, army, or is it a an army of the poor, of people who have no options well, and are drawn in by the uh, by the attractions of military service, the, the financial attractions that come with that? Uh, you're absolutely right, and I was going to talk about that, because the demographics of today's army is having trem- army all the armed forces having tremendous impact on delivery of care it's it's clearly affected the va in terms of trying to reach because you have so many reservists and guard units many of whom um you know have ended up how many i mean there are multiple deployments which weren't expected it no longer represents the demographics of the of who's serving right now it is not the demographics of the union army or world war ii armies I mean, you had president's sons fighting in World War II. You had, a, you know, a ha- an entire regiment that came from Massachusetts in the Civil War, all composed of Harvard undergraduates. Are there any? Are, are there any members of the uh, military? Are, are there any uh, members of the U.S. Senate right now, or the U.S. House, for that matter, who have family members, immediate family members, serving in the in the U.S. military? A handful. And again, now we have several veterans who have been who have been elected. Right. You know. Yeah, Tammy but, Duckworth. And- Right, perfect example. John McCain, uh, John McCain, but he's not a hero because he did, he got captured, according to Trump. Yeah, yeah of course. But, but that's a very good point because, and again, you know, Harry Truman was a veteran. Harry Truman was a decorated artillery officer in World War One, and that clearly affected Truman's decision making in relation to when he when he when he ascended to the presidency on on FDR's death. You know, that kind of thing has an impact. JFK, of course, was a decorated was a decorated veteran. John Kerry. The thing that you have with that, when when military service was widespread, I mean, I mean look, Elvis served for three years. Jimi Hendrix was 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 in the army. <laughs> you know, people forget that when you when you have that, it doesn't set you apart from the other citizens because everybody is serving. I got that a, is no longer the case. I got a question for you, Steve, but I got to take a quick second here to recognize some of the uh, local businesses that helped make this sure. program possible. Uh, thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe at 20th and Woodland, uh, where they have a breakfast, lunch, and supper, a great grocery store, and a catering service as well. Speaking of catering, thanks to Catering by Sid. Sid Cohn uses fresh and local ingredients, and every one of her catering arrangements is custom-made. Uh, thanks to Sergeant's Garage at, at 6th and College in Des Moines, uh, where you get a fair price and, a, and a, an excellent diagnosis every time. Thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th, authentic Mexican food at great prices and very high-quality service. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Uh, no appointment needed. And thanks also to the local stations uh, here in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program, especially to Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM here in Des Moines. Okay, uh, back to the conversation, Stephen. Um, my question is, how do you change this? Because uh, right now it is unpatriotic and unpopular and almost unacceptable to say anything critical of the way that, uh, that the government and others, businesses as well, glorify military service to the point of kind of obscuring what's really going on. How do you get beyond that? 
Well, that's exactly why we're talking about this and why I'm so carefully weighing my words. Uh, I've spent 20 years studying this and, and taking a look at, at what it truly means to be a citizen soldier. And again, I'm not alone in this. There are plenty of veterans who are talking about this. You don't hear that much because they discuss it among themselves. I'm privy to some of the things. I've been very privileged to have people discuss this with me. It, but you're exactly right. And that, and again, these have public policy implications. It has become, you know, such a, a sacred cow that people can't say anything. They always have to preface anything with the the comments that, you, that you're saying. And that does not, that ill serves our country. Well, there's, Military, there's a wistfulness, I, I, I use that term, you know, sort of guardedly, for the old days, for when you could win a war. I mean, the last war that was winnable was World War Two. Every war since has been a war in which we inserted ourselves, for the most part, into what would have been regional or civil wars but, but we with no result. We don't admit that. I mean, even with no, the we don't admit because my brother's right. The public policy implication is is that the glorification of the military is one of the justifications for the outlandish amount of money that's spent by this country on defense, much of which we have no idea where it is, as we're now finding out. Right. And, you know, this, I mean, I appreciate that, Charles, but you know, there's, there's something else that's, you know, war has changed. And I read a great article about the Israeli army on the Jerusalem Post a couple of days ago. And even the demographics of the Israeli army, where there's universal service, is changing because they're cutting down the number of, of ground troops. They're going more towards computerized methods, as you know. Right. Um, uh, drones and that sort of thing. Right. And, you know, that has implications for a country's military where, where of course, everybody serves with the exception of uh, they can choose to. Um, the Orthodox. The, the Orthodox and Israeli Arabs. They can choose to serve and some do. Huh. Um, and in Israel, traditionally, every, you're not serving is, is anomalous because and not only do they serve for, for three years, they, of course, stay in the reserves. And, and they go up for one month each, uh, one, a month a year. You know, I think the men until they're 55. I mean, that, that sends a message. Mm-hmm. But Israel also offers non-military service, as does Germany and other, and other right. European countries. Yeah. So, okay, we so, don't have that. We don't have that in the United States. We should have that. So, I mean, this is the, the CCC um, and the other things that came in during uh, the recovery from the Depression that were instituted were great concepts, which, frankly, I think should be reinstituted. Now, people give lip service to this. There should be another way of serving that is not military service. Other okay. countries have it. Why don't we? Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> probably because that would uh, take away one of the arguments that uh, that, uh, that that some of those in political power like to like to make about how unique and special and uh, and important strict military service is. Because you know, there was one there was one quote in the article you uh, sent, Steve. The, the article from the Economist that I particularly liked. It said, "Quote: The fact is." America's foreign policy doctrines envisage a degree of global dominance based on military might, which its voluntary force is now too small to enforce. Yeah. But that says volumes right there on two levels. One, that's that's our goal with the military is to control the entire world. And now we're up against the fact that we can't do that. We kind of did that for a while, even though, as Charles said, we did it without actually winning any wars. (laughs) But we were able to preserve our global economic hegemony. We can't do that anymore. Yeah, and again, it gets back to the mobilization. And again, I'll give you two, I'll give you three historical aspects of that. 
You know, there were over two million men in the armies and navies of the Union when the war ended. And they dissipated actually rather quickly. And people were terrified when they came home because they never dealt with so many veterans and they proved to be very good citizens. The point that I'm making here, obviously, is that the veneration of military service, that is active service, particularly combat service, forgets two things. That what veterans do when they return to citizenship, when they return to peacetime as veterans, is critical. And the world, and obviously the Vietnam vets were a great manifestation of that. Who can forget John Kerry's right. testimony before Congress? An act, an act of, of absolute moral courage that he clearly tied to his military service. Same thing after the Civil War, where the uh, white and black veterans were the strongest supporters for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, you've, we've seen upheaval socially uh, in terms of African-American veterans demanding their rights after World War One, World War Two, the Korean War. The GI Bill was a game changer because yeah. yeah. it opened up things. That aspect, I think, gets really overlooked. And the third point that I'd make is you can serve honorably and valorously and bravely for causes that are not that are not vindicated by that service. Sure, in, in a hospital, uh, as a journalist, uh, in a university, yeah, you mentioned that. That's a really good point. Well, but the point that I'm making is that the reason why wars are fought matter also in relation to your service. Right, yeah. And I think sometimes that's overlooked. Steve, we've got to run to a break. Um, sure. really appreciate you joining us, uh, folks. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Goldman. Uh, in the studio with me, coincidentally, maybe not, Dr. Charles Goldman. And we're going to be back in a minute as we continue our conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Uh, stick around on 96.5 FM and 1260 AM or online at FallonForum.com. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Times are tough. And most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms, and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York, and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to, to New York City. When you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. 
Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. Dr. Charles Goldman in the studio with me. And uh, later in the program, we're going to talk about um, the National Climate Assessment and whether or not that could be the Pearl Harbor moment for the climate crisis. We'll also talk about Senator Grassley's um, thoughts on gassing kids at the border. He seems to be okay with that. We'll talk about those things later in the program. But first, um, I want to turn our attention during this uh, holiday season when travel becomes a little more common, perhaps, than at other times, except in the summer, the um, the uh, glee that many are feeling over falling gas prices, and Charles is here to throw a damper on your gleeness. <laughs> well, um, of course, the person who was gleeful was uh, President Trump, once again demonstrating his vast knowledge of economics. Um, and, and that's, of course, when he tweeted thanking Saudi Arabia before he went down to uh, see um, the Saudi prince in Argentina for the $30 drop in uh, gas prices per barrel. Um, now, this is wrong on many uh, you know, levels. Number one, Saudi Arabia doesn't control the gas prices. Saudi Arabia represents somewhere around 12 to 13 well, percent. Well, OPEC used to have a stronger role in controlling, That's in influencing gas prices. But so who does control gas prices? Economic forces control gas prices. What, the market? The market. Well, you're kidding. Yeah, the market actually controls <laughs> the market? gas prices. And in <laughs> fact, knew? In fact, basically, gas prices are a leading indicator of where things are going worldwide. Because remember, this is not the United States market alone. This is a world market. Right. So, And I see people in France were rebelling over the, uh, the was it a 12, 12 euro per gallon increase? Mm-hmm. Not 12 euro, 12 yeah, cents. 12 cents. Uh, 12 well, cent whatever the exactly. equivalent would be, right. So uh, it, it, the, the problem with, with tracking gas prices from day, day to day is that, again, um, first of all, the biggest, the biggest oil producer at this time is? The U.S. The United States. Yeah, ahead of Russia, ahead of Saudi Arabia. Right. And at great expense to our land, our water, our property rights, uh, it's becoming a problem. And, of course, to our climate. That's correct. And that and, – and, and, the I'd like to look at it just from a purely macroeconomic view, because there's no question that when you go to the gas station and prices are twenty or thirty cents, who less, doesn't love that? People who, who doesn't, doesn't like that? that? Yeah. But in, in in the same way that the tax realignment, I'm not going to call it tax reform, uh, that the Republicans did the ongoing tax realignment of the last thirty, forty, fifty years. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's crumbs. It's crumbs. 
Um, and we also know that it, it has very little positive effect on the uh, economy as a whole. Because in spite of the fact that supposedly consumers would have that money to spend on other things, um, the rate of personal expenditure actually tracks the uh, price of gas pretty much inversely, which is that uh, – I'm sorry. It, it, so I'm not following you. So you, what you personal expenditures actually the, – you know, in the indices of personal expenditure by the consumers actually go down – with falling gas prices. How do you explain that? No one can really explain that. Now, the wait, wait. one, well... Not even Trump? Not even Trump. One reason may be that people actually take that money and save it, which is actually saving is a negative to the economy because it's, it's money a, Well, is, yeah, it's, of course, it's a good thing to do. Correct. But, but there's a lot of things that are positive to the economy that are really bad for you, like uh, lawyer fees. Uh, because the divorce rate is up or something, or medical fees because people's health care is, uh, right, and what's, is down that, the That's table. exactly right. It, it would indicate that that money is just soaked up by other things that are already creating debt, and medical expenses, as we know, is one of the huge debt creators in the United States. Um, the other thing to remember is 50-plus percent of the oil market in this country is not gasoline at the gas station. It's two industrial users, such as the airlines. So has anybody noticed that the fuel surcharge remains on all of our tickets in spite of the fact that at least at some point gases had hit multi-year lows? Hmm. Um, so it's just another example of where the money is being sequestered as corporate profits. That's a good, that's a good description. So we should right. be sequestering carbon instead we're sequestering – uh, wealth. Exactly. <laughs> and and, and a, a fewer, a fewer and fewer pockets are enjoying that sequestering. You know, and, and, and as you say, the the price of gas tends to drive consumption up. It does. It now tends, we see, we're seeing more and right, more pickup see, trucks. And we see GM getting rid of the electric vehicles that it was making. Which is the exact And getting rid opposite. of small cars because they're not profitable in right. this environment. So, of course, the negative on, on the environment as a whole is great. And the actual uh, influence, both personally and in a macroeconomic sense, is negligible um, at these price changes. We're not talking about the 15 cents gas used to be in the 80s. Right, but yeah. you know, going from two forty to two ten, or whatever it's going to be, depending on where you live in this country, is not that meaningful, as not as meaningful as you would think. Yeah. Um, well, and again, left out of this conversation entirely is what impact this has on the climate, and you know, I, we're going to talk more about that in the sure. next segment. But this, uh, you know, I, and I and I guess. I, you say the market controls these decisions. Well, this is one situation where the market does actually have a huge influence on pricing. Right. But even even the, the market, the market, I'm putting in quotes, mm -hmm. there are people behind the market that drive those decisions. And well, it may not be the prince of Saudi Arabia or even the head of Energy Transfer Partners. But uh, well, somebody I, is helping a, to drive that decision. That's correct. That's a good point. That speculation and the nature of the futures markets, you know, which is just another casino, um, has influence on pricing. But gas is such – oil and gas products are so ubiquitous around the world, it's very hard for speculators to really move the market. Where you see speculators move the market, oftentimes it's certain ag you know, niche agric agricultural products, some of the you know, uh, metals that are not in large supply. Oil is to some degree moved by speculators, but really it's mostly, particularly with the growth of the economies in Asia, is driven by what's happening worldwide in terms of growth. Yeah. That's why gas prices went up today because – of the announcement that China and the United States are going to negotiate. I mean, you would think that's not that big a deal, 
But it's, you know, a, a big deal. Especially when Trump is one of the negotiators. Well, he's not negotiating. I mean, no one would want Trump to be negotiating for the United States. Hey, except for Trump. <laughs> That's right. Hey, we've got to take a short break, folks. When we come back, uh, Ed Fallon here. Charles Goldman will continue our conversation with you about the National Climate Assessment and whether or not that could indeed be the Pearl Harbor moment in the climate crisis. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. A uh, quick shout-out to some of the uh, folks and businesses that helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to uh, Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Authentic Mexican food at great prices and very friendly, helpful service. Always enjoy dining there. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. No appointment needed to stop by. That's Diversity Insurance. Uh, thanks also to Hawk Restaurant. Located at East Fifth and Walnut in Des Moines, that's uh, Des Moines' premier restaurant in terms of foods, uh, food purchase from local farmers and local producers. Ninety percent of the food there comes from local sources. Also, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, at uh, in with a uh, with a office up in the Story County, of course. Um, Dr. Kim Holding has been doing uh, has been treating large and small animals for over thirty years at Story County Veterinary Clinic. And finally, thanks to Community CPA and Associates located in Des Moines and Iowa City. All your tax and accounting needs, uh, give them a shout. That's uh, Yingsa's business. That's Community CPA and Associates. All right. Welcome back to the program, folks. And, uh, and thanks for being here. We're going to be uh, later in the program talking, um, talking about uh, what happened at the border recently. But um, I want to, want to welcome Charles back to the conversation as we look at the recent climate, uh, national climate assessment. Which the Trump administration tried to bury. Uh, Fridays are always the news day to bury something. And the Friday after Thanksgiving is probably the uh, deepest news hole you can possibly bury something at. Right. Uh, and it failed. People noticed. The media picked it up. They actually talked about it because mm-hmm. it's, it's significant. Thirteen federal agencies saying that, uh, they, well, you know, basically distancing, distancing, distancing themselves from Trump who said that, you know, climate change with a Chinese hoax and saying that, yeah, it's very real and the impact on our health and economy is huge. Right. And, uh, you know, the data that was put out uh, tried to put a numerical consequence, a financial consequence to not dealing with it, um, which I think was helpful. But the question is, are people that future-minded. You know, the American populace says, well, we want to leave a better world for our children. But the question is, are they willing to pay for it? Um, and I I remain concerned about, as you, you asked the question, is this the Pearl Harbor? Well, yeah, I mean, is this that moment that we're finally going to say, whoa, we got to wake up and do something? Well, there was a, there was an accompanying piece in the Washington Post that I think was, was very... Um, important in, in that light. It pointed out that the majority of the country, including Republicans, believe that climate change does in fact exist and it is driven to a varying degree by human activity. It's not just sunspot activity. It's not just we're coming out of a little it's ice age. It's not cow flatulence. Right. Right. Um, the, the, and the, the main difference, however, was that 90% of Democratic voters felt it was a very important issue 
whereas among the Republican voters, only where 75 percent of them said they believed the science, a much smaller proportion felt it was a very important issue. Right. But that itself is tremendous progress right there. And in all fairness, even President Trump has made some progress on this going. I mean, he's no longer saying that it's a Chinese hoax. He's now saying, yeah, something's happening, but it's, he won't he won't accept the fact that it's it's a uh, man-made and human driven. Well, that's all well and good while his administration is, is, you know, pushing one of the greatest expansions of oil and gas exploration right. uh, at the same time and also deregulating the fracking wells to the point that they will basically admit as much methane as they feel like. Yeah, and, and, and a tremendous cost to the local water supply. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, I think the biggest problem is that Americans aren't willing to pay that much. To fix climate change, even people, you know, as a whole, for instance, they've asked how much, you know, uh, how much would you pay extra on your electric bill for them to see, you know, for your utility to, to better sequester carbon or to better control, you know, pollution coming out of their coal-fired plants, and the amount they're willing to pay extra a month is five to ten dollars, and as you get above ten dollars, people are starting to lose support for doing those things. So it's one thing to tell a pollster it's important. It's another thing to say I'm willing to actually pay for that to uh, make the future a better time. Yeah. And that I find concerning. But, but at some point, the, <clears throat> as, 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 the, as the expression goes, the chickens are going to gonna come home to roost and we're going to have to pay the piper. Okay, so I just made two metaphors mm-hmm. rolled into one. But the, uh, it, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to have to happen. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is that the economy tends to be the – golden calf that we idolize above all else. And now that the economy has been, you know, fingered as a huge victim as climate change accelerates, maybe that's enough to get people to wake up, especially the business community, to wake up and say, oh, we got to do something. I, you know, I think, I, think, I think huge elements of the business community are already there. Um, I think Monsanto is there for whatever else you may think about Monsanto. They get climate change. Mm-hmm. I think the insurance industry is certainly there. Well, the U- yeah, U.S. The military insur- is there. <laughs> the insurance industry is the one that is already having the issue of how are you going to pay off claims on the various cataclysms that yeah. we're seeing. So, you know, may- maybe some of this is going to be driven by those interests that are most immediately affected. I mean, obviously, you've got, you've got um, business interests that are benefiting by this massive you know, br- build-out of fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they're, um, they're, they're not – they should not be, and they really aren't the driving factor of the economy. The economy is a lot bigger than the oil and gas and coal industry. And, you know, at some point, and maybe this is it, you know, I, I'm really hopeful that it is because at some point we've got to really – we've got to figure it out. And maybe now that the economy is like front and center as a climate victim, people will get it. Well, clearly, you know, the – one of the things we have to do is, is limit the number of Republicans – in the federal government, <laughs> you know, I mean, because <laughs> well, I mean, they're legislators at least. Okay, they're but in fairness, are, Democrats haven't done a great job at addressing climate change either. No, that that's true. But the you know, for instance, you have Rick Scott winning a Senate seat from Florida, barely, a, barely, right, barely, but a, a a peninsula that is going to be underwater only two the only next two thirds of years, it. right? And yet, you know, when he was governor, you couldn't talk about climate change. You weren't allowed there. to talk that's about correct. it. That's yeah. correct. I mean, everything was scrubbed from the websites. Well, I mean, you know, the other problem is, unfortunately, who did the Democrats take out among the Republican legislators? They took out all the moderates. I mean, there is actually a bipartisan group in Congress. Which ones are you thinking of? 
Um, I can't say specifically, but you know they they were talking about there was a bipartisan group of like sixty representatives. Okay, well, here in Iowa, we, they, they, there weren't moderates who were taking. I, I understand out. Yeah. that, but sixty of the members of this bipartisan group that did want to address climate change, uh, sixty of the Republican members, forty five of them got taken out. In the recent election, you know, either by they got primaried out by their own or in most cases they were beaten by a Democrat. That would, that would be good to do a little more analysis on. In terms of? What, what exactly that – I mean how many get beaten in the primary? How many get beaten in the general election? What does it mean for this, um, this now probably less bipartisan commission or task force rather? Well, I think they're going to have a lot less influence. Um, Certainly in the, in, the, in the Senate. Yeah. Um, it – it's an unfortunate situation because we, we this is one example where it's so blatant that we have a f- public officials and legislators that are just completely beholden to the oil and gas industry. And then we, of course, have regulatory agencies that are being run by the oil and gas industry now or their lobbyists. Um, I, I don't you know, I've never gotten this. Everyone has to breathe the same air, even if you're going to have South Africa in the future where rich people are going to live in enclaves armed to the teeth with private security guards to keep the masses out. You're still going to breathe the air. You know, you're still going to have the same issues that we're all going to have. Yeah. You can only put the results of, of energy exploration into the rural areas for so long. Yeah. Eventually, the contamination of the environment to the point you have massive fires taking out places like Santa Monica. Or Malibu. Or Malibu. Even more right. important, Malibu. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it, you, you're not going to be able to hide from this. And in the longer we put off a 21st century economy, which would be making clean energy, making reclamation profitable, which is what it's going to have to be. You know, uh, we, we are, the problem of the administration now is the only profitability they see is going back to an economy that expands based on an 1800s technology. Well, one thing you can say about President Trump is he is unpredictable, pretty much. You never quite know where he's going to come down. Mm-hmm. Um, wouldn't it be great if his unpredictability led to a oh shucks moment on climate saying, yeah, um, I mean, he's a big man. He likes to think of himself as a big man, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it takes a big man to say, hey, I was wrong. Well, that'll never <laughs> so happen. Maybe, maybe he'll find a way of saying I was wrong without saying I was wrong and ignite this, moment, this momentous transition we need to address climate change. Uh, and that may be more wishful thinking than I'm entitled to. And would indicate that it's a good time to go to a break. Uh, <laughs> so let's do that. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, situation at the border uh, with uh, with uh, asylum-seeking mothers and children being gassed uh, by the police. Of course, there were men and men were gassed as well. But uh, when Senator Grassley was asked a question about that, uh, I was deeply disturbed by his response. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. 
Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to, to New York City. When you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. Trucker folks, uh, one of my favorite uh, local bands here in Des Moines, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Welcome back to the conversation on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. All right, so uh, the um, caravan of, as they're called, the, the migrant caravan, I prefer to call them the caravan of, uh, of political and economic refugees, the folks who are seeking asylum uh, because their lives depend on getting out of the you know, the cities and countries that they're currently in. They um, they arrived at the border, and uh, yeah, unfortunate circumstances. I mean, they're, they're backlogged in this, um, basically, it's almost like a concentration camp. It's so, uh, so unhealthy, and so many people packed in for so long. And with the, with the border officials able to process only 100 asylum petitions a day, uh, this backlog is huge. It's, it's incredible. And uh, it's dangerous. It's unhealthy. And so out of frustration, they had a, they had a march, a protest, to kind of, kind of put pressure on the U.S. to do more to help people you know, you know, go through the process as quickly as possible. And some got out of hand, started throwing stones. And uh, in response, U.S. US uh, officials uh, uh, lobbed tear gas at, uh, at them, including at at uh, women and children and others who weren't anywhere near, any, uh, weren't involved with throwing stones and bottles. And 
I a lot of people found it pretty upsetting, including, and this surprised a bunch of us, including um, uh, uh, Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo said, you know, I remember Geraldo, um, he blamed Tra- Trayvon Martin for his own murder because he wore a hooded sweatshirt in the rain. And, um, <laughs> but when it came to this incident at the border, Rivera said, the tear gas choked, this is a quote on Fox News, he um, demanded that America stop treating, quote, these economic refugees as if they were zombies from The Walking Dead. This is absolutely painful to watch, added Rivera, his voice sharp and rising. We are a nation of immigrants. These are desperate people. They walk 2,000 miles. Why? Because they, they don't. Why? Because they want to rape your daughter or steal your lunch? No, because they want a job. So, I, you know, I think more and more people see what happened at the border as problematic. Unfortunately, Senator Charles Grassley uh, is not one of them. But let's listen to this clip from an interview that that he did uh, with uh, WHO Channel 13's David Price on The Insiders this past weekend. Do you support how we handled that? Uh, isn't it really criminal that a bunch of adult males, if they wanted to get into the United States, would have women and children run the gauntlet for them? That's where the crime is. Of course, it's a crime to enter our country against our laws. Wow. So Grassley basically avoids the question, puts the blame on the, I mean, again, out of what? Thousands and thousands of refugees. The, the, well, the two, or three, two or three who threw stones. We all you know, know that. Well, I, and then he, and then he accuses them of using women and children as shields. Oh come on! That that is that is so. Uh, well, he's confounding a number of things. There, it, there, there, there are migrants who are grabbing kids because they feel they they would have a better chance with a child with them in terms of getting in. But most of those kids are fleeing violence and hardship because they have to. With their parents, okay, who are so, in great danger. So let's everybody stop grandstanding, because Grassley's doing the same thing. I personally agree that it looks terrible to tear gas children and women, but I also would prefer that to something much worse, which would be firing rubber bullets or live ammunition, as has been done, you know, in certain situations between the Israelis and the Palestinians, into groups to try to control them. Um, the situation at the border is terrible because we have no policy. And the reason we have no policy is because we've had not just this administration, but previous administrations right. unwilling. The Obama administration was also a catastrophe exactly. on immigration. Make but a decision, this is so much worse. Make a decision in the legislature of this country that will stop this from happening. Well, stop it, using making the border a terrible place as a deterrent. Because there's more to this than that. We were just talking about the issue of using ports of entry. So there's actually very few ports of entry on the border itself. Most of the ports of entry are inland. And you can actually go through the border and present yourself at one of those ports, and that's perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. That's correct. But like the one that's on the way to El Paso is like 60 miles away right. from El Paso. So, so then, you should be able to present yourself at the border saying, I'm seeking asylum, I'm heading to El Paso, I'll talk to the officials when I get there. You should be able to do that. You should be able to do that. That's legal. That's correct. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about this in Iowa. And the question is, what's it like to live on the border? I mean, you've got people who are sympathetic to the migrants' plight. You've got people who are not sympathetic, including 
other Central American immigrants that are not sympathetic because they came in the right way. You've got, you know, you, here's the other argument. You've got militiamen on the Arizona border and the California border and places who are out there armed, yeah. you know, because they expressing don't their Second Amendment right. rights. Yeah, yeah. You want one of these people shooting over the border? At, no, but, you but, know, at but the none, none of this justifies using tear gas. I don't care. You can say they could have used bullets or rubber bullets, but still. Well, so what were they supposed to do? Uh, there, there's, there's, they could have just said, "Okay, we'll let that go." We, so, 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 a couple young bucks threw a few, a few rocks well, at us. Again, we'll we let it go. There's really no need to know. respond that way. No one really knows. Everybody goes down there. You know, they send a reporter down there, and they they get a couple of shots, and then they everybody says, the, you know, what each side's going to say. The real crime here is our own legislature, which has been unable to deal with this. Well, not I mean, just our legislature, but our whole foreign policy in Central America. We have been raping and pillaging Central America. Since 1950s. Uh, you, know, you know, we raped and pillaged in Vietnam, and we seem to have a much better relationship there. Well, then. And, and I'm not sure how much of this is again. It's, yes, I understand about the Contras and, you know, the, the what is it, United Fruit with the bananas and, you know, well, everything. Well, you know. We, over, we overthrew the CIA, overthrew the duly elected government. Well, of, would the uh, duly elected government have a safer country in El Salvador now? Do we know that? Well, we can we can bet that it it, uh, it had a much better shot at a at a safer government and a safer life if we hadn't been intervening on behalf so then of what, dictators. What do, we owe them? what do we owe them? Well, we owe them a heck of a lot of um, resources to, to go in and try to help establish a functional democracy. Because again, you know, the gang problem is is is, is an issue. The uh, well, that worked great in Iraq. I mean, this is yeah, the no, problem. no. But you, you don't say you, we're going to have democracies everywhere. You don't do it with military force. <laughs> you know. There are so many, so many better ways, so many more diplomatic ways to try to resolve uh, the problem. But um, clearly it's in our national interest to end the gang problem in Honduras. You know? Yeah, and I'd be interested as to how we're going to do that. Well, we're not going to do it by continuing to demonize the people who are fleeing gang violence and lobbing tear gas at them. Well, That's de- not helping. <laughs> well, I mean, demonizing them certainly I agree with. But it, it again comes down to what are we, you know, what are we going to do on the border? What are the criteria going to be to let people in? Well, um, we have a system, and uh, I'd say about, what, 80 to 90 percent of those who claim that they have an asylum uh, case are, are allowed to come in and continue that process. The problem here in this case is we have, and it almost seems by design to me, we have this incredible backlog of people. And again, remember, most of southern, most of the immigration from the south used to be from Mexico. Most of it now is from Central America. That says volumes there. Well, we're trying to we're trying to deal this problem onto the Mexicans now. So well, that, Trump would like to do that, yeah. Right. And, and Mexican, Mexico, I think, has a role to play in helping to solve the problem. But the the the, the burden of this is on us. Again, you, you look at look at the foreign policy we've had in place for for generations that has caused mass dislocation, uh, propping up tin, you know you know dictators. Uh, disappearances and and murders in Guatemala, El Salvador. I mean, tens of thousands of people killed, disappeared, murdered with our approval. You know, you cannot help but look at what's happening there and draw a connection between our decisions on how we how we intervene in the in, in these countries for our own economic benefit and what's happening now. So, first of all, well, that wouldn't make Central America unique from many places around the world. Well, it, what about it's Nigeria. Unique, it's unique because it's so close. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying what we've done in some other countries is any better, but what we've done here right. is, is it's, well, it's been easier for our, our you know, our, our uh, it's an easier target because it's so close. It's also 
the uh, pushback against us now, as we're seeing, is easier because it's close enough for those okay, folks you, to you, get here. You're, 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 you're begging the issue the same way every politician begs the issue, which is, what do you want to do? I want to put a significant. I, I, first of all, a come to a, a come to Jesus moment that says we've done wrong and we're going to do we're going to fix it, and then a diplomatic effort to greatly improve the infrastructure, to crack down on gang violence, to uh, allow for duly elected governments to to spring up, uh, and then at the border, asylum an asylum process that lets more people in more quickly, more easily, uh, and then has I mean they need to go through the process, but just let it happen. Before you know, they sit in languishing camps. Mexico is a mature country, and they can cannot control their cartels and their gangs. I'm not sure that there's the structure in these places to do that. Yeah. Well, so. I'd say if we could give it a chance. It'd be it'd be a nice first. <laughs> anyway, Charles, thanks for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be looking at the School of America's website first. <laughs> right, all right. Yeah, please send that my way. All right, thanks, folks, for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. If you're listening to our community-owned stations, we'll be back with a little more conversation. Otherwise, we'll be back live next Monday at 11 o'clock Central Time. Back to the Fallon Forum, continuing our conversation here with Dr. Charles Goldman. Disturbing news that life expectancy in the United States declined, um, and one of the um, one of the main causes appears to be an increase in the number of suicides. Disturbing, yes, yeah. doctor. Yes. So, I mean, if we want to look at, there was actually three reports that the CDC put out uh, in short order uh, last week, um, and I guess I can give you, uh, shall we say, the highlights. Instead of the highlights. highlights. Yes. (laughs) Again, compliments on your bedside manner. (laughs) So um, basically what was found is that um, what you would expect at a time of advancing technological uh, capabilities in medicine, rising economic activity would be that you would start to see uh, incremental increases in life expectancy. Like in other parts of the world. Um, although, interestingly, uh, Europe is also seeing a stagnation of um, life expectancy. Be- but stagnation and decline are two different things. Well, that's true. That's true. And their stagnation appears to be mostly secondary to rising obesity in Europe because the issue of smoking in Europe yeah. has never changed, yeah, but I mean, which an, is they smoke a lot. An, another another uh, word for stagnation is plateauing, and that sounds a lot better. Well, but it's still not what you'd expect uh, given, you know, given the rising standards in that part of the first world also. Um, the issue in the United States is that most of the unexpected deaths are occurring in younger people, mm-hmm. and um, there's two things that's driving that. One is suicides, and the other is op- the opioid epidemic. Th- and those are both extremely disturbing. Yes, right. And it indicates, I think, a level of uh, discontent, uh, of uh, dissatisfaction with, uh, with life, uh, hopelessness, um, I'm, I'm, these aren't medical terms, but <laughs> well, that, that that's generally been you know, it, for before these reports came out, there was a lot of talk about the issue of it being concentrated in white males because of what we thought was happening in in the Rust Belt, where um, the loss of jobs for right. high school or below educated males right. was was disappearing, was increasing, um, but we're also seeing it among white women and African American males. Those were the three groups that. Um, are there demographic groups where life expectancy is increasing? 
I have the stats right in front of me. So um, it is increasing among, as a group, non-Hispanic white males. Um, and in all the other areas, it's basically been stagnant. So it's the our, same. our demographic is doing fine, Charles. Well, as a group, okay. Yes. So what do we have to worry about? Well, the main, the, yeah, <laughs> the main, the main things that are going on here are um, not approaching the opioid epidemic as a health problem, right? As a public health problem, right? But as simply another chance to moralize and tell other people you should do what I do. And what do you think drives the uh, drives the what's driving the increase in opioid abuse? Uh, definitely the introduction of fentanyl into the drug stream, and that's from our friends the Chinese who. Uh, they have labs that make fentanyl extremely cheaply, and it's right. good for increasing the addiction to the heroin. But which drug company in the U.S. has also benefited from the sale of that drug? I'm not sure who owns fentanyl, but, I mean, I wouldn't— And, this and, is, and the FDA, FDA had to approve it, correct? Well, fentanyl has a lot of uses. It, it is a drug that's not in the same class as the morphine drugs, which means that for people who cannot tolerate side effects from morphine for legitimate pain management readings— reasons fentanyl is an appropriate choice. The problem with fentanyl is not the drug companies. It's not that there's being a um, uh, diversion of the fentanyl stream from pharmaceutical companies. The problem was that we turned a whole group of people, young people, into addicts to prescription painkillers. And when prescription painkillers, it, it became and clear. And whose fault is that? Well, we understand that there were certain pharmaceutical companies that, that were uh, behind that. There were certain but in the end, pharmacies had... that were distributing billions of doses out the back door. Right, and there were doctors who were prescribing them. Correct. So we created prescription drug addiction. Prescription drugs became more expensive when they became tamper-proof, so the turn to heroin was about finding a cheaper high. Mm -hmm. And then the introduction of fentanyl was about just doing business as a drug dealer, which is you like <laughs> your you like your uh, clients to be addicted, and you know fentanyl gives you more euphoria, therefore it makes the drug more addictive. Mm. So that's that's the public health problem there. The other public health problem is guns. Um, right, and, and that, that that is an element of the decline in life expectancy. Oh, right, and, and we know that suicide is more common in rural areas than it is in urban areas. And that if you control for guns, availability of guns, that the rates actually are the same between rural and urban areas. So what's happening in rural areas is that the availability of a gun, which is an irrevocable suicide attempt, as opposed to taking Tylenol or other medications, which you could possibly be safe from. There are other irrevocable suicide uh, Well, there are, but guns devices. is the favorite. Right. Gun, guns is the favored one. And it, it, it's also leads to an increase, particularly among, among males, who tend to be fairly impulsive about suicide. And so the availability of a gun makes the suicide more likely to be lethal. Hmm. Do you know how many su suicides occur every year in the U.S.? Do you have that stat? I don't in have that mind? in front of me. No. Yeah, but it has grown. It has grown. It's and been it's up twenty five percent among males and fifty percent among women. Okay, so uh, it's a three pronged problem. I mean, and even it's more complicated than that. But it's three easy elements to identify: uh, guns. Well, right, guns. Or, Suicide, baby, suicide, and well, I mean, I, well, the, I, I imagine that the that the the what weekly occurrence of a mass shooting is a contributor, but probably small compared to the overall number of suicides. That's correct. Yeah. Well, in fact, the original study the CDC did many years ago that got the CDC told by Republican lawmakers that if you want to ever have any more funding, you'll stop doing gun research 
Uh, right. It was exactly that. They yeah. showed, because the, the yeah. argument was, they went into an inner-city neighborhood, and they said, if we change the availability of firearms, are people safer protecting themselves from somebody else? It turns out, no, because the guns was now in the house. Suicide rates went up, right, almost immediately. Right, right. So, and, and with, with, again, that's a conversation that we just seem to be uh, logjammed on, but I, I see some positive momentum. We certainly saw that from the incredible action activities of the students from Parkland. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but the guns are out there. We're not collecting guns. So the, 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 right. the fix for this is going to be the other prong, which is we need better mental health availability in all areas. It's poor in rural areas. It's poor in inner city areas yeah. you know, in terms of the and, availability. And regarding opioids, opioids uh, I mean, is there any, any effort to crack down on the pharmaceutical companies that have uh, pushed uh, fentanyl? And the uh, and the doctors who have prescribed it. Well, again, it's not the pharmaceutical companies in fentanyl. Yes, there's multiple class action suits now against probably the biggest, you know, of the companies that pushed the uh, prescription pain meds, which is Purdue Frederick, um, which was OxyContin, OxyCodone, mm-hmm. um, this is a manufacturer, and they pushed it to doctors under the false uh, quote research that showed that it wasn't addictive. Um, it, when it was used for pain management. So I, I'm not sure penalizing the pharmaceutical companies is going to change what we have now. What we need is a public health approach, which is availability of uh, things like naloxone to reverse overdoses, which you see in places like Needle Park in Philadelphia. There's a library in the middle of Needle Park in Philadelphia, which has hundreds of doses of, of naloxone sitting there. A library. A library. And the librarians go do out. They, do they have those small libraries where you can <laughs> pick them up on the side of the road in neighborhoods? And oh, no, no, it's not, yeah. it's no. not like those. It's, oh, sharing, okay. it's not a sharing library. Okay, all right. But they literally are trained to be the first responder. Okay. And we need to prescribe for people who are at high risk to have overdoses, both for prescription and non-prescription. Some, some of you yeah. haven't mentioned it. I, I mean, you look around... Just at any any average event in America, and you see, you see how bad the obesity problem is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, overweight is one thing, but obesity is another altogether, and it's, uh, and it's 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 so obvious. It's uh, it's a huge problem. <laughs> no pun intended. And I don't know how, uh, short of beginning to treat the the so-called food products that lead to obesity, the same way we treat alcohol or tobacco or other drugs. Right. You know. Uh, so are you I, I suggesting we should, treat, we should treat Captain Crunch yeah, Captain, the same way as a, yeah, as a gun? Captain Crunch should be a... Because <laughs> it's a lethal weapon. Yeah, a lethal weapon. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or, or maybe products that are just inundated with sugar and chemicals and, and stuff that makes you overeat. Wow, there wouldn't be, be much left to sell on IV. Well, good. <laughs> well, good. I mean, let, let's, I mean, think of how that would help the farm, farmers as well. Sure. If more people are using food directly from the source, that's good for our rural communities, good for our farms. Mm-hmm. It's the, uh, you know, right now, it's the food processor in the middle that makes the bulk of the money. The farmer gets a pittance, like less than 15 cents mm-hmm. for every dollar spent. Uh, the, you know, the, the grocery store, the, you know, the restaurant, they get some, but th- that's a tough living for them as well. Grocery stores make one to two like cents. One to two percent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And restaurants, a little more. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a food process, processor in the middle making the bulk of the money, and they're the ones causing the problem. They're the ones, quote, adding value to these food products that are creating, creating um, a substance that leads to this obesity problem, which is a part of the, the fact, the part of the reality of us having a lower life expectancy rate. Well, I think 
rather than I know you want to have a very conspiratorial view of things, and I, I hate saying no, to people, no, no, I, don't, I hate saying to people who are obese that it's about <clears throat> consumption. But we, in general, as Americans, overconsume everything, not just food. And the question we have to start asking ourselves is to look at look at the fact that we consume two thirds <clears throat> of the world's resources for less than ten percent of the well, world's and population, we, and we're called consumers. <laughs> well, we're told the, that the economic model to calls us consumers. So yeah, right. That's the economic model. Of that's capitalism. how we're going to be happy. Right. That's how we're going to support. Everything's the based on consuming more because that's yeah. what drives the GDP and everything else. Anyway, we could talk a lot more about the U.S. life expectancy drop. It's an interesting conversation and one that I hope uh, turns around. But um, clearly, it's a number of problems. Yes. Yeah. And Dr. Goldman here has all the answers, and we just started to extract some of those from him today. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> All right, so I just wrote my first, and if I'm lucky, only book. It took four years. It's called Marcher Walker Pilgrim. Some of you already know about it. And I'm going to read you a little bit from the book today. This is describing one of the um, uh, vehicles that we used to haul our gear across the country for eight months in 2014. And uh, it describes one of the conflicts that came up, one of, oh, hundreds of conflicts that came up. Okay, possibly the most well-managed room on the march is the mid-sized U-Haul truck we use as our kitchen. Mary DeCamp takes charge and rules it like a benevolent tyrant. Having a qualified, responsible point person devoting a large chunk of her time to this task proves instrumental in its success. The gear truck is our least well-managed feature. Much of the problem stems from constant battles over how best to organize its contents, and I regret not having a firm system in place before the start of the march. The gear truck challenge is further complicated by marchers constantly bringing in new stuff, banners, art supplies, musical instruments, lawn chairs, bikes, enough medical supplies to treat a battered army, more socks than we have feet, firewood, and even a large fire pit. One particularly daunting gear truck conflict ensues when Bob Cook begins to sleep in it. At night, Bob removes people's gear from one of the lower racks, lays out his mattress, and claims a shelf as his bunk. Steve and Shira and I often set out before Bob is awake. We try to quietly load our gear onto the truck, working around Bob as best we can. One morning in the dark, I nearly kick over a pot Bob set on the floor next to his mattress. I'm angry as I consider what might have happened if the upended pot of urine had soaked Marcher's bags and gear. Like the camel's nose under the tent, Bob's occupation of the gear truck encourages other marchers to follow suit. Next, the truck becomes a convenient place to drink and smoke pot. Not only do we have to worry about knocking over pots, we have to be careful not to kick over half-finished cans of beer, too. As much as I want to exercise my authority as march director and end this foolishness, it's a matter that falls under the jurisdiction of our elected council. The issue becomes contentious enough that an all-camp meeting is called. The council opts to submit the decision as to whether Bob should be allowed to sleep on the truck to a vote of all present. Steve and I cast the only no votes. Ironically, a couple days later, Bob leaves the march because he isn't feeling well. By the time we get to Washington, D.C., Bob will have left and returned to the, to the march a total of six times. After his next return trip to camp, Bob is able to find indoor accommodations each night, and the gear truck thereafter remains free of sleeping marchers, pots, and half-empty cans of beer. While the three vehicles needed to transport the basic stuff of our camp, 
the kitchen truck, the gear truck, and the eco commodes are essential, there are usually far too many extraneous vehicles tagging along. Cars proliferate and become a crutch, a way to get out of walking with ample options to catch a ride to the next town. Some marches choose to hang out in cafes while the rest of us walk. That's another excerpt from my book, folks, March or Walk or Pilgrim. This is Ed Fallon. Thanking you for joining today's forum.